This episode of the podcast was recorded on the 14th of May 2021 at home in Wicklow. In it, I talk about personal acting calamities. I talk about being the owner of an interesting chin. I recall a first date with my wife and discuss the significance of clowns in my life. I hope you enjoy. Cheers. Hi, my name is Dara Clear and you're listening to The Clear Out. How are you? How have you been? Any crack? What's been going on? You feeling a bit better about life? You feeling a bit better about the current moment? You feeling you're going to, you know, kick some goals, maybe? I have been thinking about some of my worst acting experiences, <laughs> which, which always makes me laugh. Um, I was recalling two of my worst ever audition experiences were for acting school in London, two of the most prestigious acting schools. The Drama Centre, home of The Method, and um, RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. And I, I think that was my first ever kind of big acting school audition. You know, going, we're talking 25 years ago. And in my naivety, you know, I picked a couple of speeches from, um, you know, actors, audition books, monologue books. And I, <laughs> now I remember I was, let's see, I was about 22 years old and I picked I picked a monologue from, I can't even remember the play. It might've been, you know, one of the ancient kind of Greek plays. And I picked this monologue where an old man walks into a garden and finds his dead son hanging from a tree. And, um, you know, has to go through this sort of, uh, you know, profound (laughs) expression of grief for the loss of his son. And, I thought this was a good choice and I was 22 <laughs> and it was colossally stupid and you could just kind of feel the kind of palpable sensation of you know a panel of very unimpressed you know rather tutors assessors whatever going why did this Irish idiot decide to play an old man um what a terrible error of judgment i can't even remember the other audition piece i chose but i remember walking out of that audition realizing way too late um what a what a silly choice i'd made um the other audition was at the the drama center which i want to say is kind of chalk farm is that is that where it was where it is and i remember waiting for way too long in the their little waiting area to actually go in and do the audition and they had sent out a scene from moliere's the misanthrope uh was it was it misanthrope one of those period kind of one of those period pieces one of those period farces and 
I had to, you know, you had to do your version of the selected speech. And again, I had a speech of my own choosing. But I remember I'd been sitting with the other kind of candidates, the other, you know, aspiring auditionees um, in the waiting area. And we didn't talk to each other. And, you know, it's a terrible... Well, for me, anyway, you know, maybe it works for some people. You know, I just kind of found everything just gets too internal and you kind of get a bit lost deep inside yourself in your own sort of anxieties or your your fear of what's about to happen. And you sort of end up in this kind of state of semi-paralysis. And, you know, when I finally got called into the room, again, there's a, you know, table of haughty, hostile uh, teachers from the drama center and they're like you know basically you know go ahead and press us um and I, you know i bombed um i don't know what i did but it was it was dull probably had no feeling um and again i left the i left the audition you know feeling you know, like I'd been in a car crash or something. Like I was just in this sort of, you know, state of shock, um, numb. And not exactly disappointed. Like it's 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 a sort of a, a dissociation where you're going, right, well, that was, that was shit. I was shit. That was just a shit experience. And in no way enamored me of, you know, the profession or made me feel suited to it. But then you can have the opposite experience, um, which I was lucky enough to have in some other acting schools, a couple in England and, you know, um, one of the main acting schools in Dublin, in Ireland. And those auditions all went well. And, you know, you, you access a bit of flow and you're, you know, well, for me anyway, you know, you're, you're, you're the positive aspects of your personality and your capability kind of come through. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of good acting you know, comes from being able to access something that's real in you. Um, and in those situations where you're being assessed, auditioned, looked at, prodded and poked, um, not in a, you know, inappropriate me too way, but you know what I mean? Um, it, it's good when you can just be totally relaxed and sort of unfold yourself and, you know, step into that kind of zone of playful fluidity Um and you know do your thing um so yeah i was just kind of recalling those experiences and yeah thinking of you know my attraction how my attraction to acting really followed on from my early childhood fascination with and love of clowns i remember going to the dentist um, at a very young age and being asked what do you want to be when you grow up and I said I want to be a clown <laughs> and you know some of you out there who know me you might go well congratulations you know you've you've achieved your dream um, but uh, yeah I was yeah I just thought clowns were fantastic I just couldn't think of anything you know funnier and kind of more rebellious and outrageous and out there than a clown and really that was sort of my initial 
kind of organic attraction to performance um, and, you know, particularly sort of buffoonery and slapstick and, you know, being an idiot. And later that evolved through, you know, a growing love of movies into uh, a desire to act. And, you know, comedy didn't feature an awful lot, in fact. Um, I do remember in acting school having, you know, a terrible experience trying to negotiate a monologue uh, of Shakespeare's, allegedly a comic monologue. And I think, I haven't checked, I haven't gone back to check this, but the character is Lance from All's Well That Ends Well. I hope I've got that right. I, I might have got that completely wrong. But I was at a moment in my training and myself and my peers, we were terribly earnest and, uh, <laughs> you know, just trying to be authentic uh, in everything that we did. Like we were just so determined not to be affected, not to just do our kind of default shtick and access something that was real. Um, and that's all well and good. But, you know, comedy it kind of requires a certain lightness of touch and a certain, you know, there's a lot of air in comedy. Um, you know, it's, it's a big bag full of feathers rather than, um, you know, a boatload of bricks and heavy cargo and earnest, you know, yearning to be authentic. And, you know, do you know what? The buzzword, I remember the buzzword when I was in acting school, it was organic. <laughs> organic is that uh is that banana organic was it grown in you know in real cow shite um you know and is that that's how we were thinking about our, our acting you know is it organic is it real has it come from somewhere real or is it some sort of you know genetically modified you know super shiny bloated um you know taught performance that's a taught as in taught tout taught taught t-a-u-t as opposed to t-a-u-g-h-t uh, performance and what happened was i had to do this monologue for assessment and this was part of our you know our ongoing assessment in my acting school you were given pieces to work on at certain stages of your training and then you'd go out and you'd present them in front of you know your peers and the the tutors at the school um and ultimately perform them in front of, you know, an invited audience, you know, for assessment night. And after that, you'd get, um, you know, you get these cryptic notes from your tutors like, mm, mm, quite a mm, quite a nice performance. We we needed to see more from the toes. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I I wasn't really sure where your where your center was. I, I, you know, was it in your was it in your lower back? um mm, mm, good good um but yeah this uh, this this uh attempt to interpret or or find the comedy in this monologue from shakespeare uh i went out and i just had nothing and i kind of fumbled and mumbled my way through it in my quest to be authentic and not um yeah and unaffected and i you know it was it was horrible and i remember walking off stage and just being kind of furious with myself 
but my uh, my girlfriend at the time who was also on the course and a couple of our friends like <laughs> they were they were delighted with me <laughs> they, they thought you know this is the best work i've ever done um but it wasn't like objectively it wasn't it was shit it was it, you know it, it wasn't that wasn't the moment um to 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 do that and i don't think it helped me on my on my journey um cut to lisbon in portugal many many years later and i was shooting a, a tv commercial for uh, the national lottery and i had a great rapport going with the director a lovely northern irish guy he was a uh, you know just a, a natural kind of fun um smiling kind of character full of jokes we were kind of shared our enthusiasms about shows that we were enjoying at the time and actors that we both admired um i think at the time we were very keen on deadwood the uh, the hbo western series that um kind of was part of this reinvention of ian mcshane as you know this kind of dark gothic baroque um <laughs> you know western villain um and also we were you know we were you know waxing lyrical about Liam Neeson and Kieran Hines two two Northern Irish actors we really admired anyway we were shooting this um, commercial and at one point he uh, the director um, Gary was his name he, he was just saying like you know you've got such a funny face <laughs> and you know as an actor you you, you sort of you have to take these things and go, well, okay then. Um, yeah, I guess I do. I, I don't know. I, I hadn't given it much thought. You know, most actors have a certain amount of vanity and I'm not exceptional in that regard. And you sort of want to be found attractive on, on a certain level. Um, you know, <laughs> the best level would be the level of, you know, being very employable and, you know, getting ongoing employment in, in acting. That that never happened for me. But, um you know you've got such a funny face uh and yeah i you know okay i'll i'll take that and that leads me then to focus on a, a particular part of my face cut to melbourne several years beyond that and i was finally working full time in the theater but it was the operating theater boom boom Yep, I was working as a operating theatre technician and my job required setting up an operating theatre in a hospital before surgery happened and making sure all the equipment was in the right place and working properly, making sure that it's, you know the theatre was set up to accommodate the needs of the, the nursing team, the needs of the anaesthetist, the needs of the surgeon knowing if the surgeon was left-handed or right-handed making sure you know the the surgeon and the anaesthetist wouldn't be in each other's way and knowing how to troubleshoot the medical equipment when it malfunctioned and i worked with various different surgeons um you know general surgeons um orthopedic surgeons eye surgeons urologists um gynecologists you know plastic surgeons there was no uh, 
you know, there wasn't, wasn't a, a maternity department there or an emergency department, you know, all kind of, you know, elective surgery. Um, and I did that for two years in Melbourne. And I remember one day being in a theatre and one of the nurses said to me, um, oh, you know, you should talk to uh, Dr. So-and-so, who was like, you know, one of the top plastic surgeons in the city. Um, you should talk to Dr. So-and-so and, you know, you, you could get your chin fixed. <laughs> And I was thinking, um, I didn't know my chin was broken. <laughs> and I just thought, what the hell? Um, I just thought it was extraordinary. And I quickly sort of contextualized it and thought, well, if you're someone who is part of the plastic surgery team, and this nurse did work a lot with one of the plastic surgeons, you know, you get you get sort of inured to um, cosmetic surgery where it becomes normalized and you start to look at faces and body parts and think, oh yeah, I could take that off or I could put something on there. And apparently in my face, this nurse saw a chin that needed fixing. Um, so look, I, I you know, this is not a this is not uh <laughs> this is not a video channel this is this is audio so you know i don't know if you can hear my chin quality i'm going to give it a little scratch here okay can you hear that scratching my chin my chin's a little bit bobbly um yeah it's uh, you know it has come up over the years i've had students I had, there was one one italian student he used to get kind of irritated by me when I'd tell the class stories about uh, about my cat, the family cat, as in, you know, the, the cat that my, my wife and I got years ago. In fact, I'll just do a shout out to my cat right now. My cat's name is Marlon. And I shouldn't say my, that feels inappropriate. Our cat. Her name is Marlon, as in Marlon Brando. Yes, that is a boy's name. That is the name of a deceased fat and rather brilliant actor and when we got our cat many years ago uh, I picked her out of a litter of kittens my wife was sort of cuddling this very docile demure black kitten and my eye was caught by this other kitten who seemed to be having a conversation with itself in the corner and the other kittens were keeping their distance from this kitten and I was like, that one. And that was and continues to be Marlon. We named her in the car as you know, on our way back from the uh, the, the, the house where we where we got her. And it's very hard. It's very hard to sex kittens. That is, it's very hard to identify their gender. Um they're just little balls of fluff. And yeah, it's hard to tell whether they have little balls. But there you go. Marlon, the female cat. And would you believe it was her birthday this week? 19 years old. What a little legend she is. Happy birthday, Marlon. You've brought us so much joy and hopefully you'll continue to do so. Um, yeah, so why did I digress there? Um, I was talking about my chin. Marlon, the cat. Let's see. Yeah, so I was talking about 
telling stories about Marlon to uh, international students. This was uh, teaching in a summer school, teaching English language as a, um, you know, English as a second language in a summer school in Dublin, you know, 12 or 13 years ago. And there was a student um, from Italy who didn't care for these tales of Marlon that I would share as little sort of icebreakers with the class, you know, reporting uh, of reporting on Marlon's hunting exploits, you know, killing rats and bringing in live mice to chase around the house and that sort of thing. Uh, and he used to roll his eyes and get quite impatient with me, this student. But he used to obsess a bit about my chin. And he'd ask, Dad, can I, can I touch your chin? I want to touch your chin. I want to push your chin. And I was like, no. You can't touch my chin. Keep your keep your Italian fingers to yourself, pal. Uh, there'll be no touching of the chin. Um, and also, previously in my life, in in my teens or my late teens, yeah, some friends of mine, um, and this is quite cool. I thought they thought you know they nominated my chin to be a good Western chin, you know, a good cowboy chin. Um, and you know, I immediately thought of I don't know. Kirk Douglas. Now, I don't have the Kirk Douglas chin. You know, I think his autobiography is called Touched by an Angel. Is that right? Because he had that kind of dimple right in the centre of his chin. Now, he's much chinnier than I am. Um, but I felt, you know, Kirk Douglas, he was a good cowboy. Um, you know, Clint Eastwood has that kind of, that, that jaw, that kind of grimace. Um you know, anyway, I, I'm starting to, you know, to, to, to flatter myself enormously by putting me in, in, in their company. Uh, but chins and funny faces and clowns. That's where this started. The clowns led to acting. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you the legend of the fishy bucket. Many years ago, in the southwest of England, a dedicated band of young actors in training were plying their trade, bright, shiny, and earnest. They had just finished a performance in their own theatre space, for which an audience had paid good money. After the company had taken their bow, one among them stood forth to address the audience. The one chosen to speak was either the prettiest, or the most eloquent, or the most charming. And they held aloft a little plastic bucket, the type of thing a child would take to the beach. It was blue and had red fishies on it. A pretty and beautifully enunciated speech was made about the impoverishment of the arts and the nobility of the acting profession. The audience members were moved and found themselves once again reaching for their wallets until the fishy bucket overflowed with the demonstration of their support. This podcast has no fishy bucket. But if you enjoy what you hear, if it makes you laugh, smile or think, there are two ways to contribute to the show's longevity and success. Wherever you are listening to this, you will find a supporter link and a Patreon link, either of which will allow you to make a donation of your choosing, 
on a one-off or a recurring basis. I thank you for spending your time with me. And if you are in a position to, I thank you even more for spending your money. Fight the good fight. Support art and artists. And now we return you to the clear out. I've just actually written a short story about an old clown who is having a sort of a, just a little moment, a little weird, surreal, existential moment where he sort of loses sight of himself in the mirror uh, after after he's finished his kind of circus performance and he's back in his caravan. And, you know, he's looking in the mirror and underneath his clown makeup, he sort of loses sight of himself and, you know, just starts wondering if all that's left of him is this persona, the the clown, the makeup, and it, you know, it triggers his, it triggers a childhood memory of kind of the genesis of his, his love of clowns. It's, it's not autobiographical. And at some point the, uh, the story will be out there somewhere. Uh, if not on my blog, um, somewhere else, I hope, um, I may even read it. I may even read it here, at, you know, at some point, um, but clowns, and the the kind of the attraction to the attraction to buffoonery is the word I used earlier. I still feel like I have a lot of that in me. You know, I like being an idiot. And speaking of idiots, my wife and I. <laughs> Speaking of idiots, let me introduce my wife. No, speaking of idiots, my wife and I are together 20 years, more or less now. It was, you know, around May, you know, it was May 20 years ago when we started seeing each other. And on one of our first dates, if not our first date, we met in a cafe in Dublin. And for some reason, this little anecdote and it's you know it, it, it's you know at, at best it's an anecdote it's you know it's a tiny little memory um not in terms of significance it's a very significant and meaningful memory to me um, it was a high old time but this anecdote somehow ended up on the national airwaves my wife my wife rang there was some competition about i don't know first dates or meeting someone for the first time and my wife rang in you know the national radio and shared this story of meeting me for the first time. Well, going on a date with me for the first time, rather. And I think by virtue of telling the story, she won a, a bunch of flowers for Mother's Day, and you know, which I think ended up being given to my mother. So my wife wasn't a mother at that stage. But the story is my wife... <laughs> I mean, I have different memories about this. But my wife basically, you know, walks into the cafe and there, sitting in the corner... A vision of actorly pretension. Me with my curly red hair and an olive green, you know, a thick olive green polo neck, kind of a ribbed polo neck, which she referred to as a turtle neck. Um, I think uh, in the States and in Australia, where my wife is from, you know, they're called turtlenecks. And 
you know, that wasn't that wasn't bad enough. The vaguely kind of beatnik poser element to it. On the table in front of me, my book of choice was The Idiot by Dostoevsky. <laughs> and, you know, I was thinking, was that not the signal? Was that not, was that not the signal for my wife to go, get the hell out of here, get away from this bozo? Um, but she was very flattering to me, actually, in her anecdote. She was like, you know, there he was reading Russian literature, you know, and made me sound all sort of, you know, highfalutin and intelligent rather than merely pretentious. Um, the other thing I remember about that particular date is that my wife very cleverly, very cleverly had the, the get out strategy. So maybe about 15 minutes into the date, her phone rang. <laughs> and I knew <laughs> even then, you know, it feels like it was a more innocent time. But even then I knew, OK, that's her. You know, that's her scheduled call for her friend to ring her and go, is everything OK? Do you want an excuse to leave? And she, you know, obviously she disguised the nature of the call and pretended it was like, oh, hi. Yeah, no, no, I'm just I'm out with someone at the moment, blah, blah, blah. But um, I'm sure I called her on it at some point subsequently. And listen, why wouldn't she? Fair play to her. You know, she'd only been in Ireland a while. She didn't know what she was going to, you know, land herself into this, um, <laughs> this, 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 this Egypt reading the idiot. Anyway, it all worked out very well. And here we are 20 years later, happily married. Um, and the little kind of addendum to that, and just to draw it back to idiots and buffoons and clowns, um, my wife produced a really great album because my wife's a musician a great musician a singer a player of the piano and guitar a great songwriter and 15 years ago she brought out a great album um, in ireland and toured around the country with it and toured with paul brady of all people and um, so it's a real kind of nice moment um, in her artistic life but in the sleeve notes to the album i get a little dedication and my wife describes me as her faithful jester ah isn't that nice so you know i'm kind of you know the, the the court clown my wife's the queen and i'm this gobshite with bells on my head you know you know slipping on banana skins and landing in custard pies and that is an important role now the idiot by dostoevsky there is there is a parallel, you know, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to elevate myself and, you know, go, I want you to think of me as this uh, classic character from, you know, a high point of Russian literature. But, you know, Mishkin, the, 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 the idiot of the title, he is an idiot or a so-called idiot or perceived as an idiot because of his his kind of guileless naivety and idealism and his innate trust and faith in the goodness of people and i think i have some of that <laughs> i have a lot of that in me i know it's ridiculous it's it's not quite the same because you know anyone who knows me well knows you know i have two fully loaded judgment guns strapped to my hips at all times my little six shooters 
and I'm happy to you know to draw them quickly, spin them around my you know, my fingers, you know, clamp them in my hands, and you know let rip and you know pump someone full of judgment lead. Um, that's definitely a big part of who I am. Um, it's really an indulgence, you know. It's it's you know it's it's a bit immature, it's a bit petty, but you know it's nice. It's nice every now and again just to kind of let rip, isn't it? Come on, be honest. It is. Now, my parallel or the parallel I would draw with Dostoevsky's, um, you know, title character from The Idiot is, you know, a kind of uh, walking through life with a very strong sense of your own kind of world or your own I don't want to say it's not purpose it's not purpose um, but a sort of a sort of a, a very strong sense of how you are and an inability to not be anything else yeah that's does that sound awkward is that an awkward way to describe what I'm trying to describe but I think that's it and I'll say it again, an inability to not be who you are. And I think that that is, I interpret that as something that's very positive. Because I think, you know, we spend, we spend a lot of our life, particularly when we're younger, maybe, you know, trying on different shapes and being very unsure of who we are, or maybe hiding who we are because of feelings of you know shame or self-doubt or you know just um you know a lack of insight and you know failure to kind of understand ourselves um but i you know i mention this now because you know i'm in my late 40s or you know comfortably heading towards my late 40s and i'm kind of at a strange time in my life in that i feel i have a very clear sense of my resources, my capabilities, and none of them are material. You know, uh, I am a person of very, you know, modest means in a, you know, in a financial sense. And that's, that's stressful. And it's certainly something that needs to be remedied um, sooner rather than later. But it's kind of not, it's, that, that's not, you know, where, where I place a lot of value. Um, I, I draw, I draw this kind of line from my childhood all the way through to now. And this is not a Peter Pan complex. This is not, um, you know, a kind of state of gormless wonder at the world. Um, I can be as cynical as the next person. I mean, simply put, it's the retention of a certain innate positivity and a certain innate faith that the world will respond well to me. <laughs> that sounds that sounds that sounds heinous, doesn't it? You know, not not in this kind of mad egotistical sense, not in a you know, not in a you know, not 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 in a sense of intense 
sort of, you know, vanity and self-aggrandizing, you know, indulgence or self-absorption. You know, not at all. I couldn't care less about any of that. It's just this strange contradiction. Um, I don't know. And maybe maybe it's just maybe I've just gone off the rails here with this sort of you know this ramble um, and I apologize it's this that's not my intention but it, there's something I think there's something very powerful about humility and I haven't mentioned that word yet in the the this podcast this episode but you know the humility of not feeling you have to impose yourself on other people said the guy launching a podcast the <laughs> there's a contradiction there so i mean yeah i i am an egotist who's addicted to humility and you know the ultimate humility is the eradication of ego it's removing yourself from the picture um but i do value that and that's how i think of the idiot from dostoevsky he isn't trying to affect change in other people. He's not trying to impose himself on other people. He just is who he is. He's just being himself. And people respond incredibly powerfully and dramatically to him in, in, in the novel. Um, and again, just in case you think I'm on this mad trip, uh, I'm not saying that people respond incredibly powerfully to me. But I'm saying I recognise something in that character. And it's his unguarded quality, his unguardedness, his um, his openness. And I think really that that is something, you know, something to be desired. It's, it's, it's admirable. Um, now, in his case, there is a sort of a a lack of sophistication perhaps there is an emotional vulnerability there and i suppose in a way that the character is somewhat opaque and that's why people are drawn to him and project their thing onto him and that's less attractive but you know the idea of being unguarded um and that coming from a place of as I said previously, a place of humility that I don't need to, you know, I don't need to impose myself on other people. I don't need to dictate terms. I personally think that is, you know, that that is a a good way to be. And if you think about it, then if we draw this back then to the clowns and my own kind of feeling about clowns and what I think is so lovely and, you know, universally um, effective about clowns is that they are open. You know, they're, they're sort of walking, the walking id, you know, their, their pure appetite, their pure impulse, their pure response. And I think there's something childlike in clowns that you know we see like as adults or as older kids you know we respond to the the childlike innocence the way a clown meets the world um but of course there is an innate vulnerability in clowns that moves us 
and it's why inside every funny clown there's a sad clown and actually I remember now I just had a flash in my bedroom as a kid I had or we had I shared I shared my room with my my older brother but there was a a tall rectangular picture of a clown and it was on um it was on a piece of sort of flexible hardboard um probably oh my it might have been eight inches across not even that no say six inches across and you know three feet tall and it was a black background and it had a sad clown with the classic sort of red nose and i think he had a little crumpled hat it might have been a bowler hat and i'm sure he was holding a balloon i mean i God knows if this memory is accurate. I mean, we definitely had a clown. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm questioning how accurate my my memory of the, the picture was. But yeah, he was there. That clown was in our room. I don't, I don't think we ever, I never named him. Um, but there he was. And I don't, I don't feel scared. <laughs> I don't feel scared of that clown, I swear. Yeah. God, I just had a, what a cool thing. That clown was there. I don't. I felt. I felt he was. He was a cool guy. I felt he was kind of keeping an eye out for me. So maybe that was. Um, maybe that was my affinity with clowns. And yeah, there was a. There's something about the classic kind of clowns' body language. There's a sort of a a defeat there, because their their life's kind of you know simple guys. Um, they've been you know they've been humbled and their sort of body language and their their clothes often uh, reflect that um and the whole this whole other thing the whole scary clown thing never got into that and i know it has become a thing and maybe you know we have to hold stephen king singularly responsible for that and killer clown is that the band (laughs) i haven't a clue about you know rock music metal whatever the hell that is but I guess it's its own kind of subgenre in horror and, you know, edgy subculture, scary clowns, clowns with fangs and, you know, blood covered, you know, knives and weapons of destruction. But to go back to my perception of clowns, you know, there's a, they're, they're, the, they're the great kind of ciphers of human vulnerability and human wonder. And, the fact that they wear masks, um, that's that, I think that's very much part of it. You know, we respond to masks in a very um, instinctive way. Um, masks just have this, you know, ageless, primal power to stir something in our psyches. You know, we see a mask and we project onto masks. I mean, a neutral mask can take on every possible human expression i mean that is extraordinary and you put a you know you put a neutral face mask onto you know onto a body onto you know whatever you know let's just talk about performers for a second and just a little shift in body language and a facial expression an unseen facial expression behind a mask informs something and we respond to something when we see that. And in a clown, we have the classic, you know, the the classic 
comedy and tragedy of human experience the smiling face and the sad face and the exaggerated mouths that many clowns wear as part of their makeup you know it highlights it, it it's it's writ large the comic experience and the tragic experience and their heart and their laughter and their tears are out there for us all to see so really you know clowns are these you know they're, they're these kind of noble figures of of humanity that allow us to live vicariously through their micro adventures and yeah i think um <laughs> you know there's probably a whole philosophy that we can build around you know the the, the clown ethos that's not about performance but about being unafraid to experience life like a clown <laughs> there that's what i'm advocating now and it doesn't mean you have to put on you know oversized shoes or paint your face or put on a curly wig or whatever your perception of a clown is um you don't have to hear the the circus music which when slowed down can get dark and sinister maybe maybe not i i think i think it gets sinister one that i like doing for my daughter is the uh the, the comedy trumpet fail um, um she's a little bit intrigued by that um but mostly when it comes to clowning in my household my daughter just loves it when I pretend to, you know, slam my head into the wall or close the door on my fingers or her current, her current favourite, um, which she insists I do, is if I make her a smoothie and I use the blender, uh, you know, I, I put my, my hand on top of the blender to kind of, you know, make sure it doesn't spin off its base. Uh, and what I've taken to doing is uh, allowing the the noise of the blender to dictate violent shaking through my body where i'm basically you know flailing you know around the floor as i frantically desperately cling to life you know with my hands still on the blender and because i can affect the speed of the blender then i can dictate the nature of this physical comedy that uh, you know leaves my daughter in ribbons of laughter so there you go well done me you know funny dad it's a competition with me i was disgusted when in melbourne she told me that one of her friend's dads was the funniest dad i was like what did you just say what what about me she said no you're cranky now when we think of clowns we don't think cranky do we so you know that was a blow that was a blow i you know and you know i'm not saying i'm not cranky I, you know I, I am cranky i get cranky there's no doubt and my daughter sees that we have great fights um but you know making her laugh that is a great pleasure and even better after 20 years of marriage is making my wife laugh and i can still do that miraculously you know after all we've been through after all i've put her through i can still put a smile on her face and it's not just when i take off my clothes um <laughs> okay so on that note let's wrap this one up and let's hear it for the clowns yeah 
you know, so much hate out there for clowns. You know, stop that. Stop that right now. Give those clowns some love. Because I have and I do. And, you know, there's a lot of clown alive and well in me. And I cherish that. So there you are. I'll leave you with that one. Okay. Mind yourselves. And, you know, we'll talk about circuses and the rightness and wrongness of them another time. But uh, in my mind, it's all good. It's all funny. Okay. Take care. Thanks so much for listening. And catch you again real soon. Bye-bye.